Hi, my name's Henry. By the way, my mom is working for Birth Monopoly. I have a secret that I can't tell anybody. But I know about Birth Monopoly is not very much. This is Kristen Piscucci with an urgent message. We are nearing the end of an all-or-nothing funding campaign for a groundbreaking new film called Mother May I, produced by me and the Birth Monopoly Foundation, about birth trauma and obstetric violence. If you've been following me for a while, you know that I strongly believe the only way we are going to make meaningful, real change is to make these hidden issues public. So I partnered with an amazing team to make a movie that will bring these issues out into the light validate women's voices, and spark a real conversation about what is happening in maternity care and what we can do to fix it. This podcast is part of the Mother May I series on birth trauma, obstetric violence, and legal rights. I urge you to support our film today as it reaches the May 15th deadline for funding. We are most of the way there, but we must reach our goal or we get nothing. Go to http colon backslash, backslash, bit.ly, backslash, consent movie. Go today and help us get this force for change out into the world. Now, please enjoy this podcast with the amazing Rebecca Decker. So we're here today with my friend Rebecca Decker. Hi, Kristen. Hi. Hi, Birth Monopoly audience. <laughs> Rebecca is one of my closest colleagues, if not my closest colleague in the birth world. We both got involved right at the same time, um, right after our two boys were born 10 who, days apart. Who both happened to be named Henry. Yeah, yeah. In the same town. Mm-hmm, yeah. And we had different experiences that got us sort of interested in and exploring and researching and eventually educating in the world of birth. And something that Rebecca and I talk about a lot is, I guess we're sort of outsiders in a way. It's really interesting to look at the dynamics in the birth room and in the birth world as people who come from different backgrounds. Yeah, so I come from a background as a nurse, and as a, I used to teach nursing students, and I also was a nurse researcher, meaning I have my PhD, so I do research with clinical trials, and it's really interesting coming from outside the birth world, and all of a sudden being, I decided to throw myself into the research and just really study the research, and what I've realized is that if there's that old saying that says fish can't see water, and it's so true, because when you are enmeshed in this system, Sometimes you can't always take a step back and kind of see it as somebody from outside might see it. And so that's where I think it was really helpful for me to not be ingrained and enmeshed and indoctrinated into kind of this dogma and to come from it with a fresh perspective. And I think you kind of feel the same way about yourself. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, obviously there's a lot of knowledge and wisdom among people who've been in the birth world for a long time. And I don't want to discount that because they know their profession better than anyone. But at the same time, there's something to be said for kind of taking a look from the outside in, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. At the big picture. Mm -hmm. A hot topic, like something we have discussed for years, is the idea of advocacy and doulas. 
Um, but to go back to what we were just talking about with that kind of like a broader outside big picture perspective, I think there are a couple of concepts that you have to know in order to have this discussion. Things that you, you have explored and that I have explored, um, including the, the system in the maternity care system, which you, you came up with this conceptual model. I didn't come up with it. Oh, that. you didn't? So okay. I woke up at 4 a.m. one morning, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And other people have written about it before, how there mm. is this hierarchy in, in the birth world and in maternity care where you have people at the top and then people down at the bottom. You have people with more power, people with less power. So I woke up one morning at 4 a.m. and I just, for some reason, could not stop thinking about it. So I got up, I went and sat down at my kitchen table, opened up my laptop, which I usually don't want to do. Now I remember. At, yeah, because yeah, I remember when you called me that day and you were like, listen. And I decided to do research on systems of oppression. And so I started just searching online for what other researchers have done and how they have tried to conceptualize systems of oppression. And a lot of the research and writing on this has actually been done with racism mm -hmm. and with slavery and colonialism and those types of systems that are set up to keep some people at an advantage and other people at a disadvantage. I found this really great master's thesis written by a student who was mentored by another expert in that field. And he took what we call the two pillars theory of oppression and applied it to a whole different bunch of situations, including slavery, colonialism, etc. And really just defined the concept of internalized oppression, which I was not really familiar with yet at that time when I was reading this. And I'm sure some people listening to this are. But basically, the theory is, is that when you have a hierarchy system where you have some people with more power, some people with less power, that it's actually propped up by two pillars. One pillar is made up of oppressive factors. These are things like culture, institutions, people with lots of power who want to keep that power system in place. So a really great example of that might be laws that uphold you know, kind of the power of physicians and keep midwives under supervision. Culturally, something that props up the system of maternity care is kind of like our cultural belief that birth is dangerous, that midwives are uneducated, that physicians are knowledgeable and helpful, and that people at the bottom don't deserve to have a say. Then you also have other institutions that have lots of power that don't want to give up their power, mm -hmm. such as some of the larger organizations, I'm sure you guys listening could think of some off the top of your head. So that's one pillar that's propping up this hierarchy. The other pillar, which people don't often think about, is the pillar of internalized oppression. Mm -hmm. And this is where you begin to either consciously or subconsciously accept the belief that you are inferior. So with this system of oppression, with the hierarchy, the people at the bottom feel they are inferior. And they may or may not realize that they do, but yeah. they do. And it's actually our own feelings of inferiority of the people at the bottom that help prop up the system. Yeah. It takes both pillars to keep the system in place. Right. And so, you know, I've done this exercise in many different places, but if you have people line up in order from most power to least power, who are the people at the bottom? It's the parents. In the maternity care. Yeah. It's the parents. It's the babies. It's doulas, it's home birth midwives, 
nurse midwives have less power than physicians. Some obstetricians have less power than their chief obstetrician, and it just goes up the line until you get to, like, hospital administrators who have a lot of power. None of these people are bad people, but they're in a system where the people at the bottom don't have a lot of say. Mm-hmm. And they start to believe that they don't deserve to have a say. And so I would say the majority of midwives and doulas and even nurses that I talk with believe that they are inferior, and they might not even realize it, but they'll yeah. say things like, I'm just a doula or... I'm just a nurse or I'm just a home birth midwife. And not only do they start to believe it, but they they also believe that about each other. So this is why often you'll see CPMs and CNMs, like CNMs may kind of, I've known some to degrade the education of CPMs. And that's where you start to get this horizontal violence. And then the same thing happens with doulas. You know, doulas are always labeling each other as inferior because they have this ingrained belief that doulas in general are inferior to nurses and obstetricians. Let's define horizontal violence for people. So horizontal violence is, is aggressive or hostile behavior among members of a group who are at the same level. Right. And they're also, as a group, at a lower level than you know, than some others. Yeah, so, so how one of my professors explained it to me when I was in my graduate program, horizontal violence is something you see among people who have a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. but very little power. Yeah. So they feel this heavy weight that they are caring for these clients and they want them to have the best outcome possible, but they have no power to create change. It's an impossible position. It is. And I want to go back to say that, like, A lot of what we're saying about maternity care as a hierarchy, you know, there's this word intersectionality that it was developed by a black feminist about how when you are a black woman, you are not only facing racism, but you're facing sexism. So you have overlapping circles of oppression that kind of build on one another. So you may be a doula. You may be black. You may, you know, have other things, other people, and you're also a woman, so you're facing sexism as well. Mm -hmm. And all of that kind of, those layers of oppression build up and affect people differently in different ways. Yeah, yeah. So another thing that I didn't mention earlier about horizontal violence is that it really serves to keep the status quo. Because as long as you have the people in the lower group kind of fighting it out, they're never going to be able to come together and create change. Right. And you see a lot of lashing out. Like, I've even seen people lash out at you. Instead of, you know, supporting you, Kristen, and saying, how can we help Kristen in her quest to improve maternity care and overcome, like, topple this hierarchy, it's all about you shouldn't be speaking up, that kind of aggression towards you. And I've seen that lateral violence towards you in the last year, which I thought was really interesting. And I think it's because people are hurting Mm -hmm. and they're so traumatized by the system that that is, this is a side effect of internalized oppression. The idea of horizontal violence within this oppressive system, you've got this group of people who are towards the bottom or at the bottom. So you have oppression flowing downwards at them and to them. And it has nowhere to go. And so it's almost like it, it pools right there. And then because they have nowhere to go with it, it shoots out at each other. So that might be like a little bit redundant, 
mm-hmm. you know, to That's what we well just said, but I really want to when you look at systems and emphasize that. slavery, the history of, of black slavery in America, that that whole concept of internalized oppression and the horizontal violence at the bottom of the hierarchy has been, you know, strongly documented. So it's a well-known phenomenon. It's yeah. very stressful to be at the bottom. Yeah. And so, and people are traumatized. Yeah. So they react in a way that you would expect traumatized people to react. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, to go back to what you said about it being subconscious or conscious, I think probably the vast majority of it is subconscious. If you asked a midwife, a doula, or a nurse, do you feel, are you inferior to physicians? I'm sure most of them would say, of course not. Of course I'm not inferior. Uh, some of them might say they are. <laughs> yeah, some of them might. But I think I think most people, they don't want to identify that, that that actually is true for them. And they're probably really not aware of it. But you see it kind of seep out in certain behaviors or philosophies yeah in language language, self-talk and how just I can often tell just by having one conversation with someone if they feel oppressed or not yeah or that internalized oppression um the most common phrase is I'm just a or I can't do that because Mm -hmm. I remember a while ago hearing that some some doulas were being trained that they were not to speak to the medical staff now, I know this is, this is not by any means all doulas at all, but, you know, that there, there were certain, there were definitely certain doula trainings happening where people were being told, you don't speak to medical staff. And to me, that was like an amazing example of not being able to see the water that you're in. Because when I said to, like, when I first heard this, I was like, wait, what? Wait, what? Like, they're actually telling people that? Can you tell me why? Like, what's the justification? And it was explained to me in a way that, of course, seemed very, like, logical and reasonable and, like, we've thought this through and this is our reasonable conclusion. But only if you were in that position of being completely powerless and inferior and having no concept of how else to be an empowered member of the team. Um, It was really obvious to me that it was an incredibly disempowering and damaging way to think about yourself as a professional and to to be there for your client. The idea that you were not supposed to speak to medical staff. So that to me is a good example. And that might be a little outdated because I think I think most I, I think most doula trainings some don't doulas do have that, showed me some hospital policies where hospitals have said you are not allowed to speak to medical staff. I have seen that before. I mean, in a couple Mm -hmm. of Southern hospitals, but I don't think it's very common. I do think, though, that change really does begin with individuals because some of the the most beneficial effects I've seen have happened when doulas realize that they're not inferior, that they are a valuable member of the team. That's not to say that their education is necessarily equal to the physicians, but they have a different knowledge and skill base that they're bringing to the table. Doulas can do things that doctors can't do. Well, and the other thing that's really cool about doulas is they see so many different doctors and midwives practicing that they've seen it all by the time they get to a certain number of births in terms of types of practice patterns. So whereas, you know, a physician who may be practicing for 20 years hasn't been in the room watching other physicians do deliveries, Mm -hmm. you know, necessarily very often. So they see a bunch of variety of skills and practice techniques. Mm -hmm. And so they have that, they carry that knowledge. But 
um, even if they're coming to it green just out of a doula training, I think that they bring that piece that medical staff can't replicate, you know, which is that outsider person who's there to support you. That, like from that study, the woman in the corner right. watching over me. Right. Well, describe that. I know what you're talking about, but... One of, um, I think it was the first randomized trials um, where the founders of kind of the doula movement, they discovered that there was an effect. They had, had assigned a woman to sit in the corner of the room and take notes, and she wasn't supposed to interact with the person giving birth, but she was just documenting all the care that happened, and they found that the outcomes improved when they just simply had that person sitting in the room. And some of the women afterwards told the researchers that it was like my angel watching over me. And I thought that was really, really yeah. incredible that that presence of that person, he didn't have any doula training, but mm -hmm. they were there simply to be constantly, constantly to be a supportive person watching over them mm -hmm. was really powerful. And that means that doulas are so valuable. Yeah. And I think once they just, they realize their value, inherent value or intrinsic value, whatever you call it, it kind of changes their demeanor and they interact differently. They're better able mm -hmm. to build bridges with the nurses and the doctors and the midwives. I know some doulas who have started, you know, they, they'll walk out to the nurse's station, introduce themselves and shake the hands of the nurses at mm -hmm. the nurse's station. And, you know, it just makes such a difference in how they're perceived and yeah. their value starts to go up in the eyes of the hospital staff because they're not looking down on themselves. Yeah. I would say my little like outsider relevant piece of information for this is that I was a woman in a man's field for many, many years. And it was like a skill that I had to develop to be respected as a person walking into a room. Because without that skill, I would just be assumed to be like someone's secretary or girlfriend. You know what I mean? And it was like, like I literally had to develop a skill of like how you carry yourself when you walk in a room, what you say, the fact that you say anything, that you walk in and you go, hi, hi, I'm Kristen. How are you? I'm from, you know, whatever firm, all these different ways that you just in a lot of its body language, really, oh, but that you subtly communicate to everyone in the room that I matter. I count. I have something to contribute. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. And I can't wait to work together. As opposed to, you know, kind of the opposite, which um, is really easy to do when, when everyone kind of, you know, when the default is that you're just the doula. And the nurses and the doctors don't necessarily have an expectation of you participating with them or interacting or really being, um, the being on their level kind of mm -hmm. yeah so it's like I think it's an actual skill you have to develop it's not something that it's an you know, aha comes... moment and I I teach these concepts in my I have this professional membership training at Evans Space Birth and par as part of the course you know we have this requirement that you discuss the content in our community and every week I log in and I'm like looking at all the people who've taken that section of the course all about this concept of internalized oppression and so many doulas are like, I never realized, you know, that I look down on myself and I'm going to change mm -hmm. it next time. And then they'll come back in and say, I started introducing myself. I started like, they're like, my body language changed. I can tell a difference. Like people treat me differently. Yeah. And it was really cool. It's funny because it is something I think that takes a little bit of processing. Like I said before, like the knee jerk reaction is, of course, I don't think that about myself. Mm -hmm. But I can say that I've given several talks about horizontal violence and sort of like power 
issues. One was at a state conference in Colorado, and one was at the annual conference for DONA, which is Doulas of North America. And it was really striking to me that both times the immediate reaction was a little bit like, whoa, what did you just say? And I was like, oh, wow, maybe they didn't like what I had to say. Like, they weren't really receptive. And then it was like this delay of like, it might be four hours or it might be like a few days before I would get a text message, an email, a Facebook message from someone going, oh my God, I've been thinking so hard about what you said about horizontal violence and internalized oppression. And oh my God, it's true. I totally have these thoughts. I have these biases about myself. I have these biases about the, you know, the, my, the rest of the team. And I do have these harmful beliefs. The other thing is really important that I do when I teach about this content is to emphasize that sometimes just being aware that this hierarchy and this oppressive system is in place can be beneficial because I don't know if those of you listening have ever left a birth just feeling really yucky, like you weren't treated with respect, but you didn't really know why. You're like, Mm -hmm. is it me? They don't like me, you know? And so like, I think it's hard because I've had doulas tell me that they feel traumatized by how they were kind of disrespected and treated as inferior. Inferior. And and that is that will cause kind of like a lingering trauma within, you know, it could happen with anyone and it's hard because even if you know about the system, at least you can recognize it then and be like, mm-hmm. "Oh, it's not me personally." You it's can distance yourself from it a, a little, little bit, bit. And be more objective. And then I really tell people you really need to focus on your healing and your self-care because it's yeah. not easy. We don't have any quick fixes, and if you're going to be in this system, um, sometimes you're going to run up against it. And you have to have resilience, and you can't have resilience without self-care. Yeah, and some people just really need to address their trauma. Yeah, and do a lot of healing and mm-hmm. counseling. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, on that note, let's go to a quick break, and we'll be back to talk more about this. This podcast is part of the Mother May I series on birth trauma, obstetric violence, and legal rights. I urge you to support our film today as it reaches the May 15th deadline for funding. We are most of the way there, but we must reach our goal or we get nothing. Go to http colon backslash backslash bit.ly backslash consent movie. Go today and help us get this force for change out into the world. We're back with Rebecca Decker of Evidence-Based Birth. Rebecca, we talked a little bit about how you and I come from sort of outsider positions into this world of maternity care and childbirth. And you actually already have a view on patient advocacy as a nurse, because that's a thing that you talk about as a nurse and in nursing school. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's considered to be part of the nurse's role is to be a patient advocate. And what that means in a, in a hospital setting is you kind of are the gatekeeper for your patient that you're taking care of. Like, people got to kind of come through you to get to your patient. Also, there's a lot that happens outside of a patient's room in a hospital that the patient might not realize is going on. Uh, so the nurse 
is on the phone a lot with doctors and other healthcare providers. The nurse is talking with other institutions with coordinating all different kinds of things, and they have to be able to stick up for you and say, hey, that's not in the patient's best interest. So, or, you know, they know part of your plan is to get this, and so they will advocate for you on the phone. So really that, I think, does come in a lot of play is outside the patient's room. You might advocate in the patient's room by, like, saying, hey, doc, you know, did you know they wanted this or they didn't want that? But a lot of it also comes outside the patient's room, Mm -hmm. and the patients don't actually see it. But most nurses really consider that to be a key part of their role is to kind of be that barrier between the patient and the healthcare system, which we all know is flawed, Mm -hmm. and to prevent bad things from filtering down to the patient that aren't supposed to get there. Yeah. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of nurses Mm -hmm. who say that's a huge part of their job. Down to even using the word protect, you know. Yeah, you I'm do protecting feel like, my patients You, you do all feel the like time. you're protecting them all the time from unwanted interference, from things they don't want, making sure they get the things they do want. Because a lot of it is about working that system, and nurses are kind of the go-between between everybody else and the patient. Yeah. So what are, you, what are your thoughts on doulas as advocates with that, you know, with that background in mind? I think it's really interesting because doulas were kind of born out of like a feminist movement. So I think most doulas are feminists at heart and really believe in equal rights for women and birthing people. And because of that, they bring an interesting perspective and in that they, a lot of them have this deep belief that by speaking up on behalf of the person giving birth, they are overshadowing their voice or taking their voice away, which I think is a really interesting and valid point. Mm-hmm. That I can understand why a lot Sometimes of... it's even termed as stealing the client's voice. Yeah. Which is just kind of funny because if I ever spoke up for a patient when I was in the room with them and said, hey, doc, they didn't want that, I don't think I would be stealing their voice necessarily. But, I mean, I guess I, I could see how you could... Yeah. It is more empowering if you can teach your client to speak up for themselves. At the same time, where it gets tricky is this is not your typical patient in the hospital when you're giving birth because you're in the middle of a contraction you might not be able to speak up right the other thing that I think isn't always doulas aren't always prepared for is obstetric violence and watching their clients rights be violated or being about to be violated and the client for whatever reason can't speak up at that moment and maybe their partner is too scared to speak up because what I've found is a lot of partners don't feel confident speaking up, and they are really the ideal person to be able to. So one of the things I'm working on is I'm developing a complete childbirth class that really focuses on the partner and teaching them advocacy skills. I actually have an Advocacy 101 and Advocacy 201 for partners, and just giving them little tricks of things to say and how to speak up is so beneficial. But if you don't have a partner who's prepared like that, you can kind of get in a really tricky situation, Mm -hmm. traumatic situation for everyone, But especially, you know, the doula is also going to be traumatized by this. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And they are all the time. Like, it's like the number one feature of, you know, like conversations I have with doulas is usually, you know, I'm feeling traumatized and I don't want to take that into my next client's birth. And yet I have all this accumulated trauma from what I've witnessed or even been complicit in. And actually, I I really think this is the... This is one of the defining issues for doulas. Yeah. Is how are they going to address 
violations of human rights that occur while they're there. Mm-hmm. And it's just something that I think they need to have a lot of conversations about. I think the conversation needs to continue to evolve, too. Yeah. There's this old guard kind of, like, viewpoint that you never speak up. And then a lot of doulas and doula trainers I know use this language, the doctor's about to do this. Did you know the doctor's picking up the scissors, trying to cue the Mm -hmm. person to speak up for themselves? To use their voice. To use their voice. And then you have some people like Tracy in Alabama, who already came on your show, who's really developed such a relationship with all of the nurses and physicians and midwives there that she can't speak up and say, hey, stop. stop. Yeah. Stop. Or, she didn't want, yeah, she didn't, she want, didn't want to get cut. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and she's really, um, you know, I really admire her because she does work in a place where these kinds of violations are more common. You might have some people listening from this, say from like Northern California, where this kind of stuff would never happen. And yeah. they might be like, you guys are crazy. Why would the doula have to Speak right, up. right, right. But there's other parts of the country and all around the world. I mean, take South and Central America, for example. They have like 99% episiotomy rates. Yeah. And we have an evidence-based birth instructor in Egypt now. And same thing. Obstetric violence is just endemic, endemic in their hospitals. Yeah. So we really need to kind of think for those people who are facing this more frequently, or even if you face it infrequently, what do you say? What do you do? Well, I think the fundamental question is, what's your responsibility and do you have a responsibility? Like, that's the big question. I think you have to, I think you have to think about that before you even address, and how do we address it? That's true. Because a I think a lot of think, people don't think it's their... Stop right there. Yeah. Well, it's not my responsibility. Um, if the doctor does that against the patient's will, I, it's too late. Like it's she not already, my job. She already like, chose that doctor, and there's nothing mm-hmm. I can do about it. Yeah, I think this is where you get into a situation too, where you gotta almost take off your doula hat and put on your human being hat, and say, what would a prudent human being do? Because when you get into, it's so funny because you and I have talked about this before. When you get into a situation where there's a violation occurring of the patient's rights. It's so funny because we spend so much time judging the doula's actions. Right. And nobody's judging the person right. who's doing the violating. Exactly. And yeah. so I think we, we can take a little bit of pressure off doulas and say, hey, look, nobody's going to react perfectly in that moment because yeah. it's, a tra- it's a traumatizing moment yeah. for everybody. It's not like you did it right or you did it wrong. You yeah. know, like it's, um, you shouldn't be in that position in the first place. Like, it's, it's not, not it's fault. not fair to yeah. you know, have that expectation of doulas, like, you're going to react perfectly every time, and, oh, by the way, it's your job to protect your client. It's literally not possible, right? At the same time, that doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, you have zero responsibility or moral duty to, you know, react or... Um, preempt when there's a clear Mm -hmm. human or legal rights violation happening or about to happen in front of you. And I I think that's a really important part of it. There is no right, wrong, yes, no, always do this, never do that. It's got to be, like you said, an evolving conversation. It will be right and wrong at different times for different people in different situations. And I do think that there is a perspective problem where there's a lot of people who are almost, I almost call it doula privilege, where they have a location privilege. If where they live is a really great place for birth, uh, they don't understand. That's an interesting idea. The doulas who don't have that privilege, who are in a place where women are being abused 
and disrespected. So I think whenever we have this conversation, we got to recommend we got to remember that there's geographic variation, and it's really powerful because, like you, I've been able to speak all over the U.S. and there are pockets of the U.S. that are like amazing places to have a baby, yeah. and other places where it's really really hard, and the doulas are all traumatized and struggling. Another thing, you know, we, I know you've talked about this on your podcast before, the whole, like, bad doula concept of, like... There's the rogue like, doula. The rogue doula who's doing whatever. All goes back to that hierarchy. And when people are afraid, sometimes they act aggressively. Yeah. It goes for hospital yeah. staff, and it goes for doulas. Mm-hmm. And I would venture to guess the rogue doula stories I've heard in those situations, the doula is scared. Afraid yeah. for her client, afraid for what she's seen in the past, carrying past traumas, mm-hmm. not knowing how to react because wasn't really trained what to do in these situations. Yeah. And when people are afraid, they act aggressively and inappropriately yeah. and unprofessionally. Right. And to go back to what you say, this is where that the hierarchy and the oppression comes right in. Because when um, a doula gets in trouble for being a rogue doula, it's like a pile-on of the doula. I can see the doula, you know, I can see the local doulas going, how dare she? Oh, my God, she's giving us all a bad name. Oh, my God, this. Oh, my God, that. How about the doctor who was about to cut the episiotomy that they didn't get consent for? I would love to see everyone turn right around and go, she did do that. But can we talk about the major violation that was happening in the room at that time? Can you imagine the response from the doula community being, gosh, thank you so much for that feedback? That was inappropriate of her. Can we meet with you to talk about the doctor who put her in that situation? Can we talk about what happened in that and moment? Some of the this is a really big problem. I've heard aren't necessarily that of necessarily a violation was about to take place then, but then it was happened in the past when the doula was in the room before, and she was afraid of a repeat situation. So, like some of the rogue doula right. so stories. So she was basically triggered. Yes, some of the rogue doula stories in our town of Lexington that I've heard uh-huh. had to do with like the doula not letting the nurses get to the baby when the baby the nurses mm-hmm. thought the baby needed to be resuscitated, which I thought was really interesting because I actually had a student one time witness that, and she told me about it. Where the doula like basically interfered with the nurse needing to get to the baby. Yeah, and this was years and years ago, mm-hmm. and. I tried, I was thinking about it, and I was like, the only explanation that I can have is that the doula must have been triggered somehow and felt the need to be a protective barrier there. But there's so much trauma in our system. Like, I, I mean, I'm not excusing that behavior. Right. The baby ended up being And I, I agree, and I want to say, it shouldn't go unaddressed. Right. Like, that could be... A dangerous, exactly. bad situation. It should not and it was go unaddressed. Super stressful for everybody. It also needs to be addressed in context, right? Right, right. It's a broken system, and people are afraid. People are traumatized. It's it's a mess. But I do think that we are seeing positive changes, and the mm-hmm. fact that there are pockets of the country where people are having all really good experiences is really great. And I think we need to point to them as like shining examples of like, look, someday doulas won't have to do some of right. these techniques because it won't be necessary. Right. We get like developing these elaborate, like these elaborate scripts or, you know, setups where they can try to avoid the episiotomy for the woman. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, like some of the people we work with who are yeah. like, oh, I came up with this great way to, you know, prevent unnecessary episiotomies, and here's what you do, you know. 
Yeah, it's it's like so bizarre. I do recognize that, that, that the role is a... different. Like you know, like I like to tell the story. One time, I was at a family member's birth, and they went to clamp the cord immediately after the birth. And I knew the parents didn't want that, and so I was family. So I could I said, "Hey, stop!" <laughs> you know, I know most doulas like don't clamp that cord. They don't want that. I know most doulas wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. So it's just it's kind of a. Um, I think well, there's a bunch of solutions. Yeah. And so, okay, so you just brought up something for me, which is I think a lot of people would accuse the doula of something to do with medical care if mm-hmm. she did that. Like she's giving medical advice or she's, you know, she's basically directing medical care mm-hmm. by saying, no, don't do that. Mm-hmm. However, let's just let's analyze that real quick, right? This is not a doula like watching a birth and going, you know, based in my non-medical background, I think it would be best for that baby if they did not clamp that cord. I'm going to make a clinical decision here and decide that I don't think that baby should have that cord clamped. Therefore, I'm going to speak up now and go, stop, don't do that for that baby. That's not what's happening. What's happening is that mother made that decision probably well before the birth communicated that to the doula, most likely communicated it to the birth team via a birth plan or orally or her partner did or, you know, whatever it was. And then the person on the healthcare team made a decision to deviate from that mother's decision. In I don't think case, it's always necessarily even a decision. I think it's yeah, oh yeah, it's automatic. Routine, it's routine. Right? Yeah. yeah. Automated. Yeah. 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 Um, nonetheless, the effect is we're deviating from the medical decision that the mother has made and she has the legal authority to make that decision. So in that case, the doula is not directing medical care. The doula is pointing to the informed decision that the mother already made about her medical care, about that her baby's medical care. brings up to a point care. that like Tracy had in her podcast with you and she said the mother already said no. Like she didn't mind speaking up and saying no because the mother had said multiple times like, yeah, I don't want that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's it's hard, I think, you know, it all goes back to that hierarchy. If the doula was respected as a member of the team, it wouldn't be a problem for them to speak up and say, hey, did you know, could you wait just a second and check with the mom? Right. Because I, I think she didn't want that. Would you right. mind just asking her? And right now I would probably guess most doulas wouldn't feel comfortable speaking up like that. But in an ideal world where everybody was valued in the room as an, mm-hmm. a team member who all has a contribution to make. I think like, for think- example, the doula is the person most familiar with the birth plan. Yeah. So, like, as a nurse, you know, she might go, oh, um, hey, Rebecca, remind me what she had on her plan for this. Yeah. Like, that would be really appropriate, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it would be really cool if we started seeing each other, all of us in the room, as valued members of the team and so that's what a lot of the work I do in my workshops and that my instructors are teaching is trying to get that team around the family so we're all supporting the family's wishes and we're all working together and valuing each other and respecting each other yeah well I'm going to point to the group that I have for doulas which is the doula power group Mm -hmm. and we talk about these things a lot with a focus on actually supporting each other and getting working through these issues So that is, if anyone is interested, it's at www.community.birthmonopoly.com. So, um, yeah, so you can go there and find out a little bit more about that. I finally wanted to talk about how, like, I kind of redefined advocacy, which I'm not, you know, sure some people may agree or disagree with it. But basically what I did 
I wrote this article all about the evidence on doulas. You can find it at evbirth.com slash doulas. And as I was editing and updating this article, I started, I was like, well, I'm going to go look at the research on advocacy. And, you know, there's a lot of definitions of advocacy. The most popular is speaking on behalf of someone, which most doulas don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Even if they could do it, they don't want to. So that's why I kind of said, well, what if we called it supporting birthing people in their right to their body and their baby, in their right to make well, decisions? Well, it's that really important distinction between a doula being seen as making a decision on behalf of, instead of, mm-hmm. over, or using her voice in that way, versus the doula using her voice to support mm-hmm. the medical decision that is made by the mother. Right. Or the birthing person. And I think there's different levels of skill and different people feel comfortable doing that in different ways. Uh, that's why I love to see uh, more doulas like Tracy and others who are really comfortable with the full range of advocacy techniques. I love that they're like mentoring mm-hmm. younger doulas, newer doulas, and helping them figure this out. Because like it's an evolving conversation. There's no perfect answer. It's a broken system. And we've just got to all stick together and work together. And, you know, I think for doulas, it would be really, really helpful to be transparent with clients about where you are on this spectrum. Like I said, I've said repeatedly, I don't think there's a right or wrong, but I do think that it is right to be transparent about it. So just to make sure that, like, everyone's expectations are acknowledged and met or if you can't meet those expectations that someone knows that's coming so like an example would be when you're when you're meeting with a client you say hey so um here are a couple of scenarios that have happened in the past you know where um I've been in the room and you know I noticed like you've got this on your birth plan um occasionally or sometimes or often the staff isn't used to doing it this way so they might go ahead and try to you know do x instead of y If that's the case, let's talk about how we're going to handle a situation like that. And then the doula can share, like, so here's what I would say, or here's what I would feel comfortable doing. And I think that really opens up the conversation and and really informs the client about what their expectation can be. So you don't have a mom coming back later and saying, I can't believe she spoke over me. I was just about to say, you know, actually, no, I wanted it this way. And my doula completely just started talking and I was really insulted and I felt infantilized when that happened or I can't believe my doula just let that happen and didn't interfere in some way I was shocked and I would have expected I think most to do that. doulas would be surprised by what the public expects because I think yeah. it's a great question to always cover in an interview to make sure you're a great fit because there may be some people right now who are like pissed at me for like proposing that doulas even use their voice I don't know I don't know how they're going to react, but I will say I have taught every semester for the past couple of years a class for college students all about childbirth. It's called Babies Are Not Pizzas, the science of how babies are born, not delivered, and we spend all semester diving deep into these issues, and we always have a doula come to class, and every single time the doula comes, the doula will talk about how they don't advocate for you. They won't speak up on your behalf if, you know, they won't use their voice to um, that you have to use your own voice to say you do or do not want something. And the students are shocked. They actually expect the doula to speak up if they see something that they right. don't want happening. And I think it's really interesting that the young, these are all young people, 19, 20 years old, 
and they're kind of shocked that a doula wouldn't speak up if they right. saw something. So I think you're right. It needs to be part of of the almost like an well, informed consent. Yeah, you totally. Know? Oh yeah. Like this but, is how we would how would we handle this? This is what I would do. I don't feel comfortable doing this and just being transparent about it. Yeah. And I think that goes back to like you've got to put your human being hat on. What would a what would a like, you know, your average human being expect or expect in this situation? That was something I saw in the Caroline Malatesta. Like this is burned into my brain when she was on the stand, um, Caroline, sorry, Caroline Maltesta is the Alabama mom who won a $16 million lawsuit after her nurses physically wrestled her onto her back and held her baby's head in for six minutes. And the hospital, you know, was, was severely penalized for, for basically committing fraud by advertising that they supported women's choices and birth plans, and, and they really didn't, and they had policies against those things. You know, I saw it when she was up on the stand in a courtroom full of people and the hospital lawyer was like, you're trying, you're telling me that your doula didn't tell you that, you know, the hospital, you know, was basically not friendly to mothers or not friendly to natural birth, you know, the unmedicated birth that she wanted. And, and she was just kind of like, um, you know, no. And, and I was, it was just like a horrible moment because I was watching the jury and here, I know that the jury is like, you know, clean, you know, totally judging her every word and they're trying to decide like whose whose story is more credible and was she lied to and you know is the hospital really not mom friendly and you know whatever and it was like when she said no I'm thinking like oh my gosh you know like there's so much behind that no it's not it's not what it looks like but to a reasonable human being like to those 12 people sitting on the jury or the 13 people with the alternate it was like oh my god it's really hard to explain why a doula would not say, hey, Caroline, actually, here's the deal with that hospital. That might not be a realistic birth plan. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, there's a lot of, like, code talk that doulas do that I don't think um, they don't realize that that clients and, like, your average human being doesn't realize they're being spoken to in, like, a code you know, like you would kind of expect like a you're trying to, to get go, subtle messages. Oh, there's no way you're going to, that birth plan's not going to happen at Brookwood. As opposed to, you know, here are some questions you could ask your doctor to see if you're really a good fit. That wouldn't make sense to me as a, as an average human being that I would not interpret that as my doula going, Hey, I've got some big red flags about, you know? Um, and I think you know, like really, really need to look at your, your choices here. I just want to say that Doulas are some of my favorite people in the world. I'll never forget when I went to my first Dona Lamaze. It was like a conference to, with the two organizations together. And I felt like all weekend, like I was on this high because I was mm-hmm. surrounded by some of the most amazing people I'd ever met. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, wow, doulas are so nice. So yeah. for those of you listening to this who are doulas, I just want to say that I appreciate you. You are a valuable member of the team. Mm-hmm. You rock. Keep up the good work. Take care of yourself. And I love you guys. Yeah. Well, I'd like to second all of that. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I don't know that there's anything I can add to that other than I love and adore doulas. And I think that that's something that I've said and written multiple times. And I would love to see, I'd love to see the doula profession really moving towards that embrace of their value and 
I want doulas to value value themselves as much as we value doulas. I want doulas to value each other as much as they value their clients. You know, I'd love to see that kind of support and compassion and empathy for each other. Like we, you know, the non-judgmental support of each other. Um, thank you to all the doulas out there who are um, kicking ass, sticking up for people, trying to change the the way birth is done in this country and giving mothers and birthing people something that they literally can't get any other way. I think it is just possibly the most valuable thing in the, in the birth room. So keep on keeping on. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you, Kristen. This has been Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, you can email me at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLXU. We'll see you next time.